entrepreneurs that are trying to find a way. And, you know, I guess all of us in some form or fashion are looking for the next big thing. It's out there. You know, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, business and creativity is there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. So, welcome to tonight's episode, Appalachia Meets World. It's Neil and Will. How was uh, Halloween? Halloween was awesome. Oh, yeah? Pulled it off. Got all three kids out trick-or-treating. All three. No rain. Good weather. Packed atmosphere. It was a a good time. What's packed in your neck of the woods? How many trick-or-treaters do you have? To my house, zero. (laughs) But we went down to the village, and it was packed. The village must be like my house. Yeah, I mean, they go all out. (laughs) My kids filled their bucket, and we went home. Well, did you let them eat it is the next yeah, question. they ate some. So is that still yeah, a thing? Like, you remember back a few years ago, you're supposed to like take your kids trick-or-treating candy to the local police station to get x-rayed? Is that still a thing? It is, yeah. I know the stations still do it. I know somewhere in Ohio, they found safety needles in Kit Kats. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, x-ray is still a thing. And you still let your kids eat? I didn't do it. Well, you mean you didn't put the pins in the Kit Kats? I hope not. <laughs> I also didn't x-ray my kids' candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. Does that make us bad parents? Probably. I had over 500 trick-or-treaters. Whoa. How much yeah. candy do you have to buy? Man, I don't know. You just keep buying it and keep buying it and keep buying it. Most people in the neighborhood end up running out. There's those very few houses that just turn their lights off from the rip. My kid's dentist today was offering, they, they buy a candy buyback, a dollar a pound. What kid is going to give up a pound of candy for a dollar? My question is, does the dentist think he's like preventing cavities or what? She, what's she, is that her goal? She's preventing cavities? I assume so. You're not going to entice a kid to give up a pound of candy for a dollar. Oh, that's great. So what else? Where are you from? Man, you know where I be. I'll be holding it down down here in the 606. One of us has got to. Yep, you're doing it well. Uh, a lot of moving parts down here, man. Politics is kicking up, local politics. Yeah, when this episode comes out, the elections will be over, or at least this this round. Yeah, you know, we just have one small little thing going on right now, and then it all kick into high gear, I guess, for the upcoming spring elections here soon. So things are happening down here in the 606, buddy. All kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, there's a lot of local races here. It's getting pretty heated, this school board race. Oh, yeah? Um, there's a lot of politics involved in it this year. I'm assuming most local school boards, there is politics involved, but it's I mean, you and I know the local school board member here that tap into from time to time, <laughs> check in on. We might need to have him on a show, you think? Ask around, around election time. Yeah, that's that needs to be our next episode. We'll see what yeah. Bundy's up to. What about inventors? You got any inventors up there in Ohio? Inventors, yes. Actually, in, in Appalachia, Ohio, called AceNet, the strong ecosystem for entrepreneurs some inventors down in Appalachia Ohio you know I'm just interested in those people that got great ideas and bring them to fruition I think we've said before you know there's entrepreneurs there's small business owners I feel like entrepreneur 
really sets out to solve a problem. That's when they can make a business work. It's usually when it works best anyway. When you're when you're pushing the envelope and focused on what's not most important, usually you make mistakes and it kind of fizzles out. But when you're when you hone in on trying to fix something or trying to to be a problem solver, that's when it really really explodes for you. I think uh it's a perfect segue into our guest tonight though. He's definitely a problem solver. Yeah. You know, I talk about it all the time about doers. You know, you got a lot of people that got good theories, but very few people are doers. Take an idea, bring it to reality and and get it to market. I mean, our guest tonight is a prime example of what hard work and determination and problem solving can do for you. I know a little bit about his background and, and it seems like he, he, he focused on a problem. He had a problem and he focused on the solution to where he, he has become an inventor, uh, a creator of an industry. It's pretty, pretty cool story for Appalachia, Kentucky. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. And the individual we're talking about is a, is a friend of mine. So if we could go ahead and jump into it and get Mr. Jamie Mosley on the episode tonight, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. I think we talk, we've talked we talk all the time how important entrepreneurship is in small towns, especially small rural towns, especially in Appalachia. And and to see someone that has done what he's done on on the level that he's done it, it's it's inspiring for other entrepreneurs in the region. So let's get him on here. Sounds good. Dial him up. Tonight we have Jamie Mosley. He is a Kentucky State Police employee, an ex-communication specialist and training instructor, and the current three-time Laurel County jailer in Laurel County, Kentucky. It's good to note that he's also a former NASCAR Bush Series driver, which we'd like to talk about as well. More importantly, why we have him on the show, he's a, an entrepreneur, an inventor, and founder of the Crossbar Electronic Cigarette. Jamie, thank you very much for being on the episode. We, we greatly appreciate your time and, and what you do. And, and, and it's a really awesome story. And we want to obviously dig into it. But we just want to thank you for being on the show. It's cool to be here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. To start it off, like Appalachians are big on tradition. Neil and I are big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have our appetizers at the holidays. Our family, we go all out on appetizers, usually more than the meal. So we wanted to ask you uh, in regards to traditions, do you have a favorite appetizer or just a holiday dish? The toughest part for me would probably be narrowing it down to one. <laughs> yeah. I, I love to eat, as anyone that could see me would, would be able to tell that very easily. You know, I don't really associate appetizers with holidays. There's some great appetizers that, that I love. Uh, one of the things that I've recently tried that, that I really like is is like spinach dip. Uh, as a kid, that's not something that was really on my menu or, or any green uh, whatsoever. <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess you, you put 
cheese and enough stuff with anything it's good so yeah that's awesome you know, no, nothing really that sticks out from a from a holiday standpoint isn't from an appetizer position i love a good spinach dip the important thing is what do you dip in it oh it's got to be tortilla chips <laughs> good answer yeah well, I, I know jamie a little bit better than you will and i and he is a food connoisseur so the man has eaten great food all over the world. So as a tagline to our appetizer question, I got to ask him currently, what is your favorite place to eat? If you had one uh, no, meal, what would it be? That is a really good question. Uh, and, and I am very fortunate to have been able to try places all over the, the world, and especially the U.S., Anyone that knows me would tell you that steak is is without question my favorite food, uh, and I've been fortunate to have it in uh, some of the you know the nation's best steakhouses. I've always really enjoyed a fillet at, at Jeff Ruby's Steakhouse, and I, I've ate at most all of his locations. I ate for the first time at the Precinct, which is a Jeff Ruby's property in Cincinnati, just a few weeks ago, and it was uh, phenomenal. But I've I've tried I've, I've kind of used that as a benchmark in in all the places that I've been able to travel to to find a better steak. I've found some that were really close and and had elements of being as good as Jeff Ruby's. But when I go back, I get reminded why it's at the top. So it, that's a pretty easy question for me. It, it would be a Jeff Ruby's property, a a good uh, barrel cut fillet at Jeff Ruby's. I have to agree with you on that one, sir. Making me hungry. <laughs> well, moving right along, away from food. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we wanted to just dive right into Crossbar, but it, it's really, it's really an amazing story of a, a true entrepreneur, Appalachian inventor. Uh, you know, it says on your website, you didn't found a company; you created an industry, which you know not too many people can claim. But more importantly, you know, I think of. There are small business owners and then there are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are real, really people that see a problem and try to solve it. And I feel like that's really, truly what you did with this product. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, Crossbar, what it is and, and how it came about? So really, uh, you know, as you said, when I created the product, there was really no intention of it being offered commercially. I, I had a problem within our jail um, I had only been there a short time, and uh, one of the things that I noticed immediately was we had a, a, a big tobacco contraband problem. I wondered if there was something that we could do to affect that because it was difficult to get any quantity of tobacco in. So being that somehow when it did get through, a lot of times it would be followed by fights and sales and, and, and people getting assaulted and, you know, the kind of the... In the jail business, unfortunately, a lot of times the big dog wins. Um, so it wasn't just a problem of it coming in. It, it created other issues beyond just that. So that was the kind of the driving force behind starting to look at what we could do. And at the time, I didn't really know that it was electronic cigarette. I just knew we had had an issue and right. I needed to come up with something. Everything that was out there when I did eventually think about looking at electronic cigarettes and the vapor industry was very young here in our area at that time. Everything that I looked at that out there was out there. I just didn't feel like was 
safe because most of the disposable electronic cigarettes at that time were either the casing was entirely metal or half and half, half plastic, half metal. Knowing the environment that we work within, that could very easily be fashioned into a weapon. So my my first thing was, you know, try to make it where it's soft plastic and you could bend it double and it couldn't be made into a, a knife or a, a shank as we would call in, you know, in our world. I started playing with that and, you know, the process evolved and it was just coming home, getting on the computer at night, basically. As the process evolved, I learned more about the cigarettes and realized that there were other issues that needed to be addressed over a traditional retail product before it could be utilized and, uh, you know, within the walls. Eventually came up with kind of a wish list to create a prototype and I contacted a manufacturing company in China, had some prototypes made. We tested those things and uh, everything worked well. And so we began using them at our facility. And uh, immediately we saw positive results. The fights went down, behavior improved among the inmates, the tobacco went away. And it gave us the ability to generate a considerable amount of revenue that was never there before so that we could fund some reentry programs and some other uh, vocational and educational training initiatives that we really didn't want to add additional money to the budget to fund. So it was really a win-win all the way around. And we used it successfully in our facility probably for three or four months. And then other jails began to hear about what we were doing and began to inquire how they could get these things. And so out of their demand, I I allowed my wife, Christy, and and one of my friends to take the product and see what they could do with it commercially. And however many years later now, here we are. I mean, we've, we've been very blessed. We have the product in over 30 states. We manufacture the product here in the U.S. now. And uh, and I guess that they say the rest is history. I was just curious, you know, you mentioned your wife. As a jailer in in the heart of central Appalachia, had never started a business before, you know, not a lot of business background. Did you seek any resources or, or any help in regards to starting Crossbar? Or was it just your wife doing uh, a lot of research on her part? Or how, how did you how did you start it there in, in central Appalachia? Well, I, I had some prior business experience and, and I've created a couple of different things to really kind of giving us some, I guess, foundation to actually start the company. Um, I'd been in the sign business for a number of years uh, prior to being elected jailer. So, you know, marketing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, things of that nature was something that was you know, pretty second nature. But I probably really would credit the majority of understanding basic business fundamentals to really my time in NASCAR. And that's something that a lot of people don't really understand that they look at it as it's, it's racing. But the reality of it is it's about 10% racing and it's about 90% business from representing companies to finding the funding and creating the marketing partnerships that allow you to put the product on the racetrack. So um, I was fortunate to really, you uh, through my years in NASCAR, I, I drove for some really smart business people, one of those being Jay Robinson, who I spent most of my career driving for and, and learned a lot of things from him through the years. And then a lot of it, I guess, just came down to kind of being lucky, too. Uh, they, they say it's you know better to be lucky than good. So I, I would credit some of that to luck. It's been pretty successful despite 
uh, probably making a lot of mistakes initially. One thing I was going to ask, just so our listeners know, so you said you kind of got to make contact with folks in China and got a prototype sent. So how many of those prototypes did you go through until you finally came to to a component or uh, or a cigarette that you were happy with? Honestly, I, I had done enough research leading up to my submission, you know, of the design elements that pretty much the the first version that they sent back wound up being the initial design. Now, there have been design changes probably along the first couple of years, some slight modifications and some additional security measures that we added to the product. But 90% of what Crossbar is selling today is right off that initial submission. Wow. Do you have a design patent on that or any other patent? We do. We have a full patent on that, and we received that um, probably three years ago. It, it It's a very slow process right? and and can be a very expensive process as yeah, well. Definitely. You know, we, we did receive that, and something we're very, very proud of that you, you don't really think about those things then, and I don't guess at the time you really – place much value and being able to say that you you hold a u.s patent but uh, you don't have to say that that's uh that's probably uh one of the cooler things about what we've done it's actually really remarkable that you come up with you know everybody sits sits in their family room or sits in their garage or sits in their man cave and thinks about man if I could invent this and turn it into this and get a patent on it then maybe I could do this Everybody thinks about that, but very, very, very few people actually do it. So when you went to uh, to say, yeah, I've got this product, I want to get a patent on it, what, what were some of the steps involved in getting to that point? You know, honestly, initially, the, the patent was never of consideration, and I guess maybe that was in part because that I, I didn't develop it to be, you know, a, a commercially sold product. So I'd never really thought about a patent. I was just trying to solve a problem at the jail. As time went on and and I saw that they were going to be able to, you know, do pretty well uh, with the product commercially as it, as it took off, you know, that was obviously something that we began to consider and, and recognize that if it could be done, there, there would certainly be value in it. You know, one of the big things that, you know, I think entrepreneurs and just people in general come up with some very creative ideas that could really work. But many times when you begin to research, you find that someone has already come up with something similar or has intellectual property that already exists that would probably prevent you from marketing that product in in the capacity that you originally would like to. So the research process was, you know, one of the, you know, probably the, the first things is, of course, we utilized attorneys to to do that, but, you know, making sure that there, there wasn't something out there already uh, in existence. And once you find out that there's not, then you feel like, well, maybe we do have a chance to get a patent on this thing, but it, it's still a very long and grueling process. You know, I, I did read that you yourself are a non, non-smoker, which is pretty ironic considering what you invented. But uh, to the people that, that suggest that inmates should not have tobacco, should not have products of that type. What, what do you say to that? I mean, how has it 
helped your jail? How, how did it solve the problem? And like I said, as a non-smoker yourself, as someone who has never smoked a cigarette, how do you answer that question? People that say it shouldn't be allowed in prison. Well, you know, I think that's a, a very fair question. And I think that the people that have those concerns, you know, that's a, 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 a very valid question to ask. So a lot of people feel that way because they feel as if it's rewarding the inmates. When I created this product, I, I created the product on behalf of the facility and behalf of the agency. It wasn't necessarily to reward the inmates or allow them to do something. It was created to prevent them from doing something else. Right. Um, the reality of it was they were going to smoke, but they were going to do it uh, by breaking the law. Uh, and by them doing that was going to create danger for other inmates primarily or potentially even danger for our officers. And so I looked at it as, you know, this is created as a tool. It's created as a tool for the agency that can be provided as an incentive for cooperation among the inmates for better behavior. Um, and you just have to use it in that manner. But I think that's the, the main thing that, that people may not think about or understand at the time is this was really not created for the pleasure of the inmates. It was created as a tool for the agency. And, and all of the money that's generated from the sale of the product is designated or earmarked that that money has to go back into inmate welfare programs. So the revenue generated from these serves many different purposes, and uh, especially over the past two years and being able to help facilities buy electrostatic disinfectant machines and uh, some of the PPE that's been purchased. I think that's an amazing part of the story that a large part of this revenue goes back into the welfare of the inmates. I think at one time, and I'm not sure what the current numbers are, but um, the product, you know, over the past few years, it had helped jails generate over $50 million of additional revenue that went directly to those programs. And, and that could be used on educational initiatives, rehab, reentry, you know, but it all has to go back directly to inmate welfare. Because I have a little bit of inside knowledge on, on your company and what all you've done, I know that the electronic cigarette world is one that is, is highly scrutinized. And I know that uh, a process for yourself with FDA approval started over a year ago, uh, trying to accomplish the goal of, uh, of becoming approved by the FDA. Can you talk a little bit about some of the regulations that have been put in place on electronic cigarettes and the, the processes that you've gone through uh, to make sure that you're doing things the right way along with the FDA approval process? So initially when the, the deeming regulations were presented, and that's probably been in the neighborhood of three years ago, the first things that were required was you had to register your company with the FDA and you had to register each one of your products. So that was kind of the first small hurdle in, in complying with the deeming regulations. And, and obviously Crossbar did that and all of its products were registered and the company was registered. Um, but it really began the basis for the FDA to create a master file on each company. The big hurdle was September the 9th of last year was the filing deadline of what's called a pre-market tobacco application. And that is the process that you have to go through 
in order to have each one of your products considered uh, to receive what the FDA describes as a marketing order or basically approval of the FDA for this product to remain on the market. The goal of the FDA was by September the 9th of this year to, for all the people who filed that application, and if you did not file the application, then your product was supposed to come off the market as of September the 9th of last year. There were approximately 500 companies, I think, filed on several million products for approval. As of September the 9th of this year, there were about 90% of those products had been had received marketing denial orders, meaning they could no longer remain on the market. The only products that can legally be on the market at this point in time are those products that are in what's called the substantive uh, research part of the process, which is kind of the third of four phases. So we're in substantive, the, the crossbar products are in substantive review. So they can remain on the product or remain on the, you know, the legal product list while we're awaiting more information and, and, and hopefully a marketing order at some point. I find it funny that, you know, most inventors have a product as successful as yours, you know, dive head first into something that they're 100% passionate about. And I've heard you say, you know, it's easy to sell e-cigarettes, but it's really hard to keep people safe. And I've heard you say that, you know, even though you have been really successful in this business, you continue to want to be the Laurel County Jailer because that's what you're truly passionate about. Can you talk a little bit about that passion? Can you talk a little bit about your passion for Appalachia? And can you just give a little bit of advice to that inventor in Appalachia that has an idea? So there was like four questions. There was. Sorry one. about that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to get. I'll try to get all of them. I, I'll leave part out here just, just to remind me here when I when I finish. But you know, I, I think you know the the first part of that is you know you hit it right on the head. Is you know my my passion is is the jail. If you really stop and think about it, my passion at the jail was what created this thing in the first place. The the company is has been very successful and, and I would give a lot of credit to Christy and, and Greg Crockett who takes care of the daily operations and I'm at the jail every day. I don't have a passion for selling cigarettes. I, I have a passion for my staff at the jail. I have a passion for creating results for my voters here in Laurel County. Um, when I ran for the first time nearly 11 years ago, uh, I ran on a concept and I made a lot of uh, um, I made a lot of promises of things that I wanted to do and transform the jail into. Coming up here November the third, I'll be filing again for my fourth term as jailer, but this time I'm going to be running on results. So from that standpoint, it's very easy for me. I, I love being at the jail. Uh, I love being with my staff, and many of them have been with me quite a while. And uh, you know, it's a, it's always a, a ever evolving industry and trying to stay on top of things. And, uh, you know, it, it's just what I really like to do. And it's probably what I think I'm best at, you know, after I created the product, you know, I kind of handed that off. Now I certainly offer advice 
from time to time and, and, and give my input on things. But the reality of it is in the day-to-day operations of the company, I have very little to do with that because I am so dedicated to the jail and, and in order to, I think, accomplish the things that we have here in our county as it relates to our jail, that, that's what it requires. You just got to be totally dedicated and, and very, very passionate about what you do. From a, you know, an, an entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, I think some of the greatest products happened kind of just like this did. It was very organic and not with the intentional. Uh, I would compare it maybe to some of the best songs that have ever been written. Many writers go in every day and sit down during writing sessions and uh, manufacture songs. Uh, very fortunate to have some good friends in that industry. But I think the best songs are written when you're driving down the road. That um, was kind of the same thing with with this. You know, I, I wasn't really trying to find some way to make money. I was just had an idea to try to affect a, an issue that we were having. But I think, you know, for entrepreneurs that are trying to find a way, and, you know, I guess all of us in some form or fashion are looking for the next big thing. It's out there. You know, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, of business and creativity is there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. Um, but there's also, you know, it doesn't have to be a product. It can be a service. It can be uh, a lot of different things. But going back to that, and, and, and this is something that I say a lot, being that I never was a smoker, I don't think you have to be passionate about a product to be successful uh, or or make it uh, financially beneficial. I think most op- entrepreneurs are in business to make money. So I don't necessarily think it has to be something that you do or you love or, you know, but if it's something you can put energy into, you can put effort and hard work and dedication into it. And if it's successful financially, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's cigarettes or widgets, that, you know, it, it, it's really about being successful at the end of the day. That's such an excellent point. And I have to follow up with this question. Sorry, Neil. I know, I know you have one, but since you mentioned it, Jamie, what is the best song ever written? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, probably the only thing that I love better than eating is country music. <laughs> no fault and, there. Uh, it, it would be really difficult for me to to say which one is best. You know, my, some of my favorite artists are Merle Haggard, George Jones. You know, I, I'm just such a fan of the old traditional country music, but it, it, that that's a tough one. If I had to say one, and I won't say it's the best, but the first one that would come to mind would probably be He Stopped Loving Her Today. Oh, <laughs> I'd ask you to sing it, but I know <laughs> I, I know things would, would we go won't, awry. <laughs> we, want, we want people to tune in, not turn it off. That's right. That's right. You know, we didn't really discuss your your roots and and where you're from, but just so the listeners know, you are a, a, definitely a true Appalachian uh, and someone that was uh, born in Eastern Kentucky and spent, I guess, your whole life in Appalachia, like myself. Some people grow up and move away and never come back, and others of us uh, stay close to our roots. I do have one question as it pertains to that. Mine and Will's goal here and the people that we talk to is just to gas up uh, Appalachia as much as we possibly can and tell all the great stories that are 
happening inside uh, of Appalachia. But when I when I say that one word, when I say that to you, what what comes to mind when I say the word Appalachia? You know, for me, it's probably mountains. You know, here in Laurel County, we have what what I would call some hills. Yeah, <laughs> but I wouldn't really call them mountains. You know, growing up in in Perry County, uh, went to my first three years of high school. I went to Knott County Central, and then I graduated from MC Napier High School in 1988. You know, one of my first post assignments with the Kentucky State Police was at the Pikeville Post, Post Nine. About two years up there, and just absolutely loved it. I loved Pike County because it was it felt so familiar, so much like Perry County and Knott County. And, you know, I, I love the mountains. Uh, I love the people in the mountains. And, and that is something that is so hard to find once you leave them. There's a, a, a kinship and there's a, uh, a respect and an admiration for those folks that really never goes away uh, regardless of where you move to and you know, you always have that connection with where you grew up. You know, there's been so many successful people come from Appalachia. You know, we're just talking about the, the country music industry. My my good friend, singer-songwriter Larry Cordell from Lawrence County and right around there, you, Ricky Skaggs and Loretta Lynn. And, you know, the U.S. 23 is known as the country music highway. There's There's been so many of those folks that have been successful. Dwight Yoakam, absolutely. Gary Stewart from Letcher County. And, you know, there's just been so many of those folks that have done well, and especially, you know, in creative arts and in music. But then you also have people like one of my classmates at Knott County Central High School and Rebecca Gayhart, who went on to uh, be a very successful model and an actress. People have a real way that that come from Appalachia and, and finding uh, a vehicle to do great things. Very very proud of growing up in the mountains and 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 in the area. But I, I think that uh, you know there's there's always a misconception about us, and and I feel that sometimes we're judged very unfairly in, in the way that we may talk i have fortunate enough to go from the perry county speedway to the talladega speedway and and i still sounded the same everywhere in between (laughs) um (laughs) but you know i i I think sometimes we're we're unfairly judged by that but there's certainly no shortage of ingenuity and creativity you know among people from appalachia absolutely couldn't say it better myself yens (laughs) <laughs> yeah how did how long how long were you in nascar i'd ran uh, i've been competing in the arca series uh which is kind of the next series below nascar actually nascar owns the arca series now they competed on you know most of the same racetracks mile and a half super speedways i'd ran three of those races in the arca remax series in 2002 and three in the first part of 2003 and just by chance got a, a, a one race opportunity to race at Nashville Super Speedway in uh, 2003 for Jay Robinson. And the stars just aligned that night and, and we were able to give that team the best finish that they had had in, in three years of existence. Wow. Out of that came an opportunity to continue driving for that team that I drove for the remainder of 2003 and then went back 
had some ups and downs and I left that team at the end of 2003 for what I thought was going to be a better opportunity at the time that turned out to be a, a bad decision. But, uh, I went back and drove for Jay Robinson several races throughout the years and went over and did some races in the camping world truck series. And so really, you know, all in all, you know, probably 25 or 30 races between 2003 and, uh, I think I last raced last in the truck series about three years ago. So however many years that is, but, Very cool. uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to uh, uh, close the book on that yet. I, I might well, give up that maybe at some point in time we'll do it again. That's what I was going to say. That's my, that's my next question. When, when, how do NASCAR drivers decide to retire? I mean, is it, is it an age thing? Or obviously you haven't decided yet from that last statement. Oh, I've, re- I've retired four or five times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's just you keep coming back and – you know, initially it was, you know, I was trying to make a career of it. You know, 2003 was a very good year for us. And, you know, we were on a good trajectory, but, you know, back to the business part of it, once again, you know, one decision can really affect, you know, the, the course of the rest of your entire career. And, and it certainly did in mine. Really would would have to give credit to Coach Tubby Smith for helping me extend that career. Um, you know, over the next few years. And, and I really owe the thanks to that to Jeff Shepard, who introduced me and Coach Smith. And he was a, uh, a big part of, uh, you know, helping me find sponsors and getting some opportunities. And we thought that we had a really, really good opportunity. Once again, business crept in and the company that we were working with was the holding company that owned it, sold it to another holding company. And it basically did un- undid two years of of work and trying to put that whole thing together, but everything happens for a reason. And I'm very grateful that I had the opportunities that I did and in NASCAR. And, and I hope that, you know, that can be inspiring to young racers, you know, from Eastern Kentucky. And, you know, we kind of did something that really had not been done outside of Owensboro. Um, the Waltrips and the greens had had great success in different levels of NASCAR and, Right. You know, but all from Western Kentucky. So, you know, we kind of blazed a trail of, of being able to come from Eastern Kentucky with, with not an asphalt track anywhere close and having some success in NASCAR. And I, I hope that young boys and girls that love racing, that they're dirt track racing, whatever they're doing, uh, will see that, hey, you, you don't have to be from Charlotte. You don't have to be from Owensboro if you want to go to NASCAR. You know, yeah. the road runs there from here, too. That's that's so cool. I love that advice. And and I also loved how you talked talked about transitioning your skills from NASCAR into entrepreneurship. But I think there's an excellent story there too. I wanted to ask ask you real quick. You kind of already answered the question, Jamie, but you you know, you said you were from Perry County. You know, you live in Laurel County now, but just and obviously Appalachia is home, but just where do you call home and what makes it unique for you? I've been here for 30 years. You know, Laurel County is, is my home, but I have a connection with where I'm from that's very, very strong. When I go home, and, and unfortunately, sometimes it's for uh, a funeral or to visit someone that may be not doing well or, or, or whatever, and you see those folks that you haven't seen in years, that there's just a connection there. And I, I'll have to say that 
they make me feel very proud to be from there. And I'm very humbled and that a lot of those folks have kept up with my career, you know, as jailer or the things that we did in NASCAR or, you know, even in business. But, you know, I, I think I've got two homes. You know, I think it's uh, Eastern Kentucky, and, and then I think it's Laurel County, and I think that's okay. Absolutely. Will and I are kind of in the same boat, to be perfectly honest. We always claim Bell County, and, you know, me especially have lived the majority of my life in Laurel County. So, yeah, we can definitely relate to that. It's kind of a tough question to answer, honestly. I mean, I, I, I never really had given it a lot of thought. You know, I'm, I'm certainly from Perry County. But this is home. To that point, I I never really gave it a lot of thought either until I moved out of Appalachia. And then that's all I could think about. There's no place like home. I, I click my heels every day, but it just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are days when I want to click mine and go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Neil says. <laughs> Whenever I do go somewhere else, I, I don't. When I'm coming back home, I'm I'm very anxious to get here. Yeah, yeah, good answer. Uh, yeah, I like that point. I I, I appreciate your time and uh, appreciate you doing this. You know, I I probably get too much credit in the thing, all the things that I've been successful in. A lot of other people have have played a part in that, and my parents and my grandparents, especially. You know, I was the probably the first of four or five generations that was not a coal miner you know that's that's a certainly another big part of Appalachia that I'm very very proud of and and having the heritage of a grandfather and a a dad who worked in that business and I'm I've been so blessed throughout life to you know you, you you don't get to talk to a lot of people that had the opportunity to live their dream but I've done it on a couple of different occasions and uh, I get to do it every day right now, and I'm I'm just very very thankful for the opportunities that I had. I, I've certainly been blessed. Thanks again, and we'll, yeah, we appreciate uh, it. I thank you all. I, I appreciate you having me. All right, Neil. Now in the beginning. He, he's a true problem solver, and I think we stated that during the interview. And, and you can see his passion, not not for the product, really, but his passion for the people that he serves, his heritage, but also, you, you know, where he works. He, he talks about the passion with the jail, being a jailer, and, and, you know, the people that he serves in the system. From a business standpoint, Man, Mosley has done really, really well. He's very humble, and you won't hear it come out. And I think part of it is just because it does take so long, and you put so much time and energy and effort into it. I was glad we got to talk about uh, getting a patent. And he has a way of doing this, kind of simplifying things. But he made it sound like it was super easy. But getting a patent on a product is not easy. It's difficult. Yeah. yeah, you got to go through the right steps and you got to go through the right channels, but he does a great job of being patient and um, going through those steps and seeing those things come to fruition. So, yeah, not 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 just anyone can get a patent. It, it can be a very complex process. It's very time consuming. And like you said, patience is, is important. I thought it was a cool point when we asked him the question about when he started this business, did he get find any 
any support. I thought it was a perfect point when he talked about the transferring of skills from his days in NASCAR, from his days marketing, from his days with other businesses, how those skills transfer over to his current job, to his current position as an inventor, as a creator of an an entire industry, as he says. He kind of hit the nail on the head that uh, it's important that to have those skills and, and to, you know, they can be transferable apply, to apply those skills. Exactly. I did think it was a, a great, great point by him as well. And, and very interesting also to, to see kind of how he saw it from that perspective. So one thing we didn't talk about, which I, I, I found he, he had an episode on Vice News HBO. Yeah. And yeah. apparently it's the, most watched episode on Vice News of all time. Because they could have done the story and they could have spun it in different ways as a lot of outsiders do when they come to Appalachia. You know, they could have looked at the jail systems in Appalachia. They could have looked at the exploitation of the inmates. Uh, but, you know, they could have spun it in a lot of different ways, but it was it was just a really good clip that he got on, on HBO. Uh, so if you, anybody wants to check it out. Yeah, all of our listeners should check that out. If they go Google that, uh, check check that story out because it, it does kind of bring it to, to life for you. It's really cool. What a great dude, first of all. And then what a great problem solver. Saw a problem, found a solution, and then brought it to fruition. Not many people, lots of people see problems. Not many people solve problems. And grateful that he joined us tonight. Well, Country well, music connoisseur and NASCAR legend, I think. <laughs> I think it's how we'll describe him. I think uh, if he gets back into the sport, we'll let all our listeners know. Oh, for sure. They'll know because we'll, we'll be there. Actually. We'll be there. We'll be there. We might be on the pit crew, but Appalachia Meets World will definitely be on that hood somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. I, I appreciate him taking the time. And I know he's a busy person. And uh, it was funny when he asked him, you know, what advice would he give other entrepreneurs? entrepreneurs and and him being a non-smoker you know he mentioned you don't necessarily have to be passionate about the project about the product passionate about the solution passionate about what you're doing yep absolutely how about you uh, anything of place that struck you while jamie was was talking man i know we take this back to uh you know our grandparents a lot but when you think about small business owners and what what jamie is has done you know it always takes me back to think about our grandfather who started a small business in the car business and you think oh it's easy to be in the car business but it's not easy to be in any business for longer than 25 years much less 50 years I oftentimes catch myself thinking about, I wonder if, I wonder if Papa had these same trials. I wonder if Papa had these same problems that he had to find a solution to. And you know, he did over time and we never really saw a lot of it up front really until later on in life. But uh, just what a testament it is to anyone that, is involved in a business for 53 years. So when I was, when Jamie was talking about all his trials and tribulations and um, because I know Jamie, I know some of the other business endeavors that he's been in and, and, you know, and this one is one that has been going on a while now. And I, I think one of the reasons why he is so humble, like we talked about earlier is just simply because he knows how hard the grind is. And I thought back to, to our grandfather in that moment and, you know, thought about how 
humble he always was in our eyes anyway and you know how he made it seem so easy but just how hard the grind is for every business owner and I got the utmost respect for any business owner out there because everybody thinks it's easy very few people do it and there's a reason why because it is hard but you know hopefully you know we're doing a good job of kind of bringing light into some of those Appalachian businesses that have been through that grind. <clears throat> I think back to a couple episodes ago when we were talking about uh, Mr. Benton, the king of country ham, and just how humble he is. But he's humble, again, because of the the daily grind that it takes to push your business uh, over the top. For all those people out there that are in the midst of that grind, keep going, man. Keep pushing. Keep Keep striving for success and you will get there. Always do the right thing and, and try to, to pursue uh, a real uh, problem that you're trying to find a solution to and things will, will work out. Yeah, man. Well said. I, and and it, it's a good point. You know, small business, it's not easy being a small business owner and small business owners build communities, build downtowns. I mean, it's important for people to put their neck out there and become a small business owners because if they didn't, towns would fall apart. I mean, it's especially important in smaller rural towns, especially throughout Appalachia. Good. I applaud and commend all the small business owners out there. Absolutely. Me too. You know what they say? What I always say to small business owners, don't be scared. <laughs> Just do it. Take a leap of faith, man. One of my buddies, Rocky Bassaleri, I'll give him a shout out. He mentioned to me not too long ago about the Kentucky Adventure Tour. Have you ever heard of that? It's in eastern Kentucky, but it's, it's like an, a, a thousand mile motocross tour that you can take in the hills, you know, of eastern Kentucky. And it just, it brings in a lot of people, but I just want to make the point that we, we should start pointing out these small businesses in Appalachia and how important they are. We're limited to how much we can be on this podcast. The more we can bring the good things about Appalachia into it, uh, the better. And I said it better myself, man. Let's pick a business every week to highlight. We'll do that. You guys got some suggestions? Send them to us. All right. Well, I guess I'll end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. It's getting thin Now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains